How's everybody doing? Good, good, good. I'm going to pray one more time, and we'll get started. Father, we come before you again in Jesus' name, Lord, and we thank you for your word. Father, your word is the difference between this being just a, a concert or a conversation, God. What makes this different than just a bunch of people randomly being in a room is that we open your word and you speak to us. And we have an actual relationship with an actual person through an actual person who died for us. Thank you for Jesus, and thank you for your word, God. And Father, thank you that now as we look into your word, you're going to guide us. Father, you're going to show us what you're like. Father, so as we sing songs about you being awesome, and we sing about calling you Jesus, Father, we pray that you would give us a firmer foundation for that in your word. God, that we would see your awesomeness, that we would see the beauties of knowing this man named Jesus. Uh, God, and we pray you'd help us to rejoice in you alone, Father, and to rejoice in your strength. I don't feel incredibly strong right now, but it's a good thing that it's your strength we depend on and not our own. And we ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Uh, Well, if if you're visiting, I'm Tripp. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are going to look in Philippians 3 this morning. Uh, And I want to talk about Philippians 3, but I want to talk about it specifically by thinking about resumes. You guys know what resumes are. It's that document, maybe a page or two, or if you have lots of amazing things you've done, maybe more pages. But it's that document that talks about who you are, it talks about your background, and it talks about your skills. Now, I personally don't have a lot of experience with resumes. And the reason I don't have a lot of experience with resumes is because I'm a rapper. And normally when I do concerts, people don't ask for my resume. I never had to turn a resume into my record label before I got signed. You know, like, won a rap battle in high school at lunchtime. That's the type of stuff that would be on my resume. Uh, And there were some amazing battles that are resume worthy, but we're not going to talk about that this morning. Today's about Jesus. But resumes, y'all know what resumes are. The only time I really had to turn in a resume was when I was applying for a church that I was on staff at in D.C., and it was hard to even figure out what to put on there. But I understood why they wanted it, because a resume helps people to be able to see who you are and what you've done so that they can see whether or not you're qualified for something. You know, what's the type of stuff we turn in resumes for? for if we're trying to go to college, right, so they can see what our grades were like, what kind of extracurricular activities you did what kind of nerdy things you did that made your friends not like you, but you hoped it would work in your favor when you tried to get into college, or when we're trying to get a job so people can see our education experience, our past work experience, the things that tell people what we're like and the things that we've done. Now, since that's what a resume is, I want you to think about if there was to be a resume, not just about your work experience, about your education, but about your entire life, about who you are and what you've done, what would be on that resume? You know, who is it that you think you are at the core? And what are the notable things that you think that you've done? Just think about that for a moment. Now I want you to think about what, if, if right now you had to stand before the God of the universe, what would God think about that resume? Because isn't that a lot more important than what a college might think or, or business might think or your peers might think? What would God think about that resume? if you had to stand before him right now. You know, a lot of people, when they think about heaven and they think about eternal life and they think about a relationship with God, 
Most people assume that that kind of resume, who you are and what you've done, that whether or not you get to spend an eternity with God only depends on that. Right? So, for instance, if I'm on a plane, plane or something, which is, again, a great place to share the gospel because people can't walk away. You just got to sit there. Whenever I'm talking to somebody, one of the questions that I often ask is, hey, do you think that you have a relationship with God? Or, or do you think you're going to heaven? And most people will say, yes, or I'm not sure. But the people who say yes or probably, they think that that depends 100% on who they are and what they've done. Because if they say, yeah, I have a relationship with God, or yeah, I think I'm going to heaven, I'll say, well, why? People will normally say, well, because I'm a good guy, right? Or, you know, I try to do nice things for people. This little old lady fell down, I helped her up, you know? Or, you know, I was eating some sticks of gum, and all of my friends, when I pulled it out, came around, I gave them all of my sticks of gum. And these are the kinds of things that we foolishly in our mind assume are good enough to get us somewhere with God, our resumes. In Philippians 3, Paul is going to give us a resume of his own, and he's going to speak to us about where his resume gets him with God. And we may not really like everything that he says. But since he's talking about himself, he's telling us his own personal story, speaking from a humble place, I think it'll be helpful for us. And here's the main question I want to ask and answer today. What good is your personal resume when you stand before God? What good is your personal resume when you stand before God? And I'm going to tell you the answer right now. Your resume falls short, but Jesus can give you his. It's the main thing I want to drive home this morning, that your resume falls short, but that Jesus can give you his. Philippians 3, let's, let's start reading in verse 1. That's what Paul says. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. I, I just want to talk about that for a second because I think it frames what he's saying uh, in the rest of this part of this letter. Rejoice, that's one of those terms we hear a lot. It sounds real Christian-y, rejoice, and we don't really know what it means. We just kind of throw it around. You know, like somebody would be like, man, how you doing? Man, my house just burned down, bro. I lost everything. Rejoice in the Lord, brother. Like, well, okay. Rejoice if I get some insurance money. But we just kind of throw terms like that around, rejoice. What does it mean to rejoice? Well, rejoicing is a kind of rock-solid expression of gladness in God. Rejoicing is like uh, when, when a kid gets a Christmas gift that they really wanted, and they're so happy they almost can't express it in words, that's what rejoicing is. It's an expression of rock-solid hope and gladness in Jesus. And specifically in this passage, it's a rejoicing in the works of Jesus as opposed to the works of ourselves, right? It's a rejoicing in what Jesus has done as opposed to just rejoicing in what we've done. That's what Paul wants us to get at. So here's the thing. When you think about who you are and what you've done, that may be the key to success in this world, but it's exactly the opposite when we're talking about the family of God. Who you are and what you've done will not secure you anything spiritually or in the kingdom of God. Again, your resume falls short, but Jesus can give you his. And So I want to look at what he's saying, how he tells us to rejoice in three points. And the first one is don't lean on your resume. When you thought about who you think you are and what it is that you think you've done in your life, I want to encourage you not to lean on that. And we're accustomed to hearing the opposite when we start to talk about resumes. Again, when, if you went to a school where maybe they had a college advisor, they would tell you, hey, 
you got to make sure your resume is nice if you want anybody to consider you in college, right? If someone's advising you on trying to get a job, you need to make sure you put everything on there that you've done, all the good things, so, so that... Uh, the, the, uh, so that the business will be able to see those things and hire you. What we're going to see in this passage is we don't want to lean on those resumes because we're not trying to, trying to point out how qualified we are to be in the family of God. We can't depend on who we are and what we've done. And here's the main reason, because at our core, who we are is just we're created by God and we're made in His image and we're beautiful creatures, but Scripture tells us we're also sinners, that we've rebelled against God. Right, that he's told us not to do things that we've done. He's told us to do things that we haven't done. That our thoughts and our desires and our actions are, are not in accord with God's will. So if we're depending on who we are, well, we're not quite good enough to meet that high standard. And what about what we've done? Well, sure, all of us have done some good things, but we've also done bad things. We have lied and we have cheated and we've sinned against God. So the truth that we see in Scripture is that who we are and what we've done has separated us from God. That God takes sin very personally. You know, sometimes we think sin is just like breaking a rule that God made up. Like, oh, God wrote down some rules and I broke them, but, you know, it's all right. You know, you're being a little harsh. You know, maybe, you know, I'm not perfect, but, but that doesn't mean I'm not qualified to be in the kingdom of God. Well, Scripture tells us that what would qualify us, like we earned it, would be absolute perfection, and none of us meet that standard. We're not qualified to be able to spend an eternity with God. We fall short. So what good would it do us then to lean on our resume? So pay attention to what Paul says. Let's, let's keep going. Chapter 3, verse 2. He says uh, to the Philippian church, he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble. This is still verse 1. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. So he's basically saying, look, I may not be telling you anything new, but it's still good for you to listen to. Sounds like something my dad would have said to me, like, you don't listen, so I'm going to keep saying this over and over again. He's saying it's not, it's not a big deal for me to tell you this again because it's, it's, it's safe for you. You need it. And he tells them how to rejoice. And, and, and he's going to go very specific here. Did, you ever, did your parents, ever, when you were growing up, tell you to watch out for certain kids? Like, don't hang out with them. And they said that because they didn't want it to be a bad influence on you. I had a friend when I was like five years old. His name was Michael Mikalinka. That's a real name. You can ask my sister who's sitting right here. And Michael Mikalinka, he was cool. He was a little wild, though. And my parents would always say, don't you hang out with Michael Mikalinka. That kid is wild. I don't know what types of horrible things five-year-olds were doing at the time, but they wanted me to watch out for Michael Mikalinka. And the reason is because they saw the way he was acting, and they thought, I don't want my kid to act like that. It's what a good parent does. They try to watch the influences. And in the, in the same way, like a good father, Paul is saying to the Philippian church, I want you to watch out for some specific people because they're doing some things that I don't want to rub off on you. So look at verse 2. He says, look out for the dog. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's serious about the Philippians watching out for some specific people. So you may say, who's he talking about? Well, it seems like in this passage and from other places in the New Testament, he's talking about Judaizers, who, who's this group of false teachers who are telling people, it's not enough for you to believe in Jesus 
you also have to do some physical things as well. And they were specifically pointing to Old Testament law saying, you don't just have to believe in Jesus, you also have to be circumcised. You also have to observe these sacrifices and observe these kinds of festivals. And so Paul is saying, watch out for them, right? And that's why he uses strong words. He does some name calling. He calls them dogs. He's not talking about cute little poodles either. Right, in this, in this cultural context, when they're talking about dogs, dogs are the lowest on the totem pole of animals. We think of dogs as the nicest and the cutest and the most likely to let, lick your face, which is gross. We'll talk about that another time. When Paul says dogs, he's talking about the lowest on the totem pole of animals, those scavengers who just kind of go around and eat any and everything. He calls them evildoers because what they were teaching was not just neutrally wrong. It was evil. They were doing evil against those they were teaching these things. He calls them mutilators of the flesh because of their obsession with circumcision and Old Testament law. So someone may say, why is Paul treating this so seriously? Why is he doing name calling and calling them evil? Why doesn't he just say, hey, watch out for them. They're not doing They're not saying all the right stuff. Watch out for them. The reason Paul is taking it so seriously and telling them so seriously to watch out is because what they're teaching has something to do with their eternity, that if they believe what those others are teaching, it can lead them straight to hell. Right? saying if they're telling them to depend on their resume and to lean on their resume, that they can do enough good things, that can lead them to hell. It's the worst kind of false teaching. I want y'all to know not all wrong teaching is created equal. There's some things we cannot disagree about. Christians can disagree about spiritual gifts, right? Christians can disagree about the kind of songs we sing in worship. We can disagree about the end times and exactly when Jesus comes back and what he'll be wearing, all of that. We can disagree about that. But we cannot disagree about how we're saved. We cannot add to what Jesus requires for salvation. What Jesus requires is letting go of our sin and believing on him, right? That we can't get in with our works alone. We need faith alone and Christ alone. And so these evildoers saying it's not enough to just trust in Jesus. There's something else we have to add to it. That's an insult to the death of Jesus. That's basically saying to Jesus, I know you tried to save us, but you didn't do it good enough. So let me help you out and add a little bit more right? That's like telling Jesus, you missed the spot. Let me get that. Which is an insult to the sacrifice of Jesus. It's like if somebody, here's how it hurts us. You know, if somebody's drowning in a pool and someone needs to jump in and save them, what's the last thing that they should do? Keep flailing their arms and stuff. Right? Someone's trying to save you and you kicking the flat. Like you had your chance to swim. You lost it. You didn't do it, Okay. <laughs> You lost your opportunity, so you just need to be limp and let them carry you to safety. They're getting in the way, right? They're getting in the way of someone who's trying to save them. And in the same way, if we insist on trying to get ourselves into heaven with our good works, if we insist that we have something to add to the work of Jesus, if we insist that we can do something about our own salvation, we will do nothing but get in the way of Jesus as he tries to carry us to safety. So Paul is saying, don't listen to them. Surrender and let Jesus carry you to safety. The only righteousness to be had is in him. So he's saying, watch out for these evildoers who are teaching that you need to kick and paddle a little bit more. It's faith alone and Christ alone. 
Now, Judaizers on around right now, so you may say, well, I don't need to watch out in the same way. There's still crazy kinds of false teaching that you need to watch out for. False teaching is alive, and we should treat it with the same seriousness, right? Anything that threatens you trusting in Jesus alone is dangerous. Prosperity teaching can be eternally dangerous. If people teach you coming to Jesus is coming somewhere to get, just to get rich or just to get wealthy, That's dangerous. That could threaten the salvation of some people because they could be trying to come to a Jesus that doesn't exist. That that can be dangerous. Official Roman Catholic teaching, right? So I'm not saying all Catholics, but official Roman Catholic teaching teaches that we're not saved just by faith in Jesus, but by faith and the good things that we do, which is exactly what Paul is going against here. That can be dangerous teaching, right? So there are dangerous teachings that we need to actually look out for. And this is why we have to know our Bible. So that when we hear somebody say something crazy, we say, that doesn't smell like the gospel I see in Scripture. Right? That's why Paul warns us. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that our good works aren't important. Right? Nobody who has true faith will be without good works. But there's a difference in thinking that you have to clean yourself up before you come to Jesus. And in believing that once you come to Jesus, he'll clean you up. Those are very different things. And it matters. There are different kinds of false teaching, too. People telling you the Bible's not really true. People telling you the Trinity's not really true. Know your Bible. Watch out for that false teaching. And as one of your pastors, if you hear something that sounds a little different or that you're questioning or that sounds brand new, come talk to us. That's what we're here for. We want to help you understand what Scripture says and what it means to trust in Jesus. Let's keep going. Philippians 3, verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Let's stop there. When he says we are the circumcision, which sounds like a weird phrase, he basically means we, we are the ones who've been circumcised in the truest sense. Right, what circumcision, what scripture calls the circumcision of the heart. Just like baptism, circumcision for God's people in the Old Testament was meant to point to something that happened inside. It was just an outward thing that was supposed to show something that was going on inside. Almost like a name tag, right? Your name tag, all it does is just show who you are. These outward signs like baptism or circumcision is just supposed to show that. So Paul's saying, no, we're the real circumcision, even though we're not obsessed with it like them, those who've actually thrown off our flesh and our hearts and have been made new. He's saying we're the true circumcision. He says who worship by the Spirit of God, not just those who just do some church stuff, not those who just do good deeds, not those who just do the outward stuff. We actually worship by the Spirit of God. We worship the true God. And then he says, and glory in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh? That word there for glory means boast. Basically, we boast in Christ, not ourselves. Jesus is what we hope in. He's what we're banking on. He's what we're excited about. He's saying not to trust in your works, not to bank on your works, but his. I went to a basketball game the other day. And I knew one of the players, and so I went to Will Call, and I walked up there very confident and was like, hey, some tickets for me, Bearfield, B. And they was like, we don't see him. But I was nervous for a second. I was like, nah, like you need to check again. <laughs> I know my tickets are in there. Right? So, so if I just go up there just based on my own name, they don't know who I am, and they don't care about me. 
But if I can say, no, 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 I'm with somebody else. No, no, no. What I'm banking on that I'm going to be able to get into this game is the other person who left tickets for me, right? That's what my hope is in as far as getting in this game. And we think about getting in God's family, the thing that we bank on, that we hope in for our entire life, it can't just be you. Your name, who you are, and what you've done isn't enough. Paul is saying boast in Christ, glory in him, bank on him. That's what he's getting at. And I want to ask you, what do you boast in today? What's the thing that you bank on? What's the thing that you hope in? Maybe it's when you were growing up, it was your athleticism or your good grades. Right? Maybe it's the relationships you have. Maybe it's the job you have. Maybe it's the skills that you have. And all of those things are good, but you cannot let them be your boast. That can't be what you glory in. You can't assume those will somehow get you on God's good side. I mean, do we really think that God sees a dude do something really well, like dunk a basketball, and is like, oh, my goodness, I've never seen that before. You better come on in my family. Like, that's, that's not how it works. Likewise, God doesn't say, look at that church attendance every week for three years. That is impressive. Come on. That's just not how it works. Right? We can't hope or boast or bank on those things. And here's the thing. We cannot boast in the Lord and boast in our works at the same time. Either we bank on Jesus or we don't. And our hearts are always going to want to bank on the stuff that we do, which is why we need passages like this to remind us that we need to put our confidence in him. Because who we are and what we've done is not enough to make us right with God. It may make us right with each other, and that's, that's fine. People may like us because of good things. That's fine. But that's not how it works with God. Some of us think that we may get to make it into God's family based on our parents or how we grew up. We grew up in a, in a Christian home or our church attendance, those things. And if you think you have reason to have confidence in what you've done, Paul is going to have some words for us. So first, we don't, don't lean on your resume. Number two, lose your resume. Lose your resume. People love to brag. We know people like to brag and talk about the stuff that I've done. And maybe the best braggers in the world, I mean, first First order world-class braggers are rappers. Rappers are great at bragging. So I'm going to read you some lyrics from a popular song. This is what it says. I would have put the lyrics on the screen, but I had to bleep some, so I'll just read it. This is what it says. Got everything, I got everything. I cannot complain, I cannot. I don't even know how much I really made. I forgot. It's a lot. Never mind what I got. Don't watch that because I came up. That's all me. Stay true. That's all me. No help. That's all me. All me for real. In case you missed it. Came up. That's all me. (laughs) Stay true. That's all me. No help. That's all me. All me for real. This is a very clear example of bragging, right? And as he goes throughout the song, he, he kind of adds, he feels that in a little bit, all the stuff that he's done, all the money he has, so much that he forgot how much it was, which doesn't sound like good stewardship, but so much that he doesn't even know <laughs> how much he made. And he goes on and on and on, his success, his girls, his money. And somebody may say, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, isn't he just stating facts? He really has made a lot of money. He really has done a lot of things. Well, Paul, in this passage, in a different way, is going to give us a list of his accomplishments. And let's see if we can see some differences. Listen to Paul, Philippians 3, starting in verse 4. After saying we should put no confidence in the flesh, Paul says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, 
If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So here Paul says that he has no confidence in the flesh, but he's trying to show his readers, look, I'm not trusting in my flesh, but if anybody has reason to, it's me to make sure it's clear that he's, he's not one of these people who's never won, and so they're like, oh, winning doesn't matter that much. It's not like when you were a kid and your coach, you always lost, and your coach is like, just have fun. That's what it's all about. This isn't like that. Paul is saying, look, these are the things that I've accomplished. And that list, though it means almost nothing to us when we read it the first time, these are the things that these Jewish readers would have valued. These are the spiritual accomplishments that people would have assumed got people somewhere with God, right? His ancestry, the things that he's done. I mean, it's very clearly who he is and what he's done. He even says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, as they thought about. Following the law of God, Paul is saying, I've done that. And he's saying, even still, in light of that, I don't put my confidence in the flesh. He's righteous according to their standards, but showing that still doesn't make him right with God. So the difference is, even though both Paul and Drake list their accomplishments, they do it in very different ways. Drake lists his accomplishments to be able to see like, Look at all this stuff I did. I'm better than you. Feel bad about yourself because I'm the man. Paul, on the other hand, says, here's all these accomplishments that you value and you wish you could do all this. But even though I've done all of this, it still doesn't make me right with God. So that Paul points to his accomplishments only to say it still means nothing. Still means nothing. Some of us here today still want to lean very heavily on our resumes and we need to lose them like Paul did. How do you know if you're leaning on your resume if you've lost it? Here's some things that look like leaning on our resume, trying to do things to make God like us more. Right? When we feel like, maybe God doesn't like me that much. You know, I haven't prayed enough. I haven't read my word. Let me just pray and read my word more so that God will like me. Praying, reading your word, good things. To make God like you and accept you, bad motivation. That's leaning on our resume. Finding your identity and your accomplishments. If when you think about yourself, the thing that brings you the most peace and joy is the stuff you've done, you're leaning on your resume. Putting too much hope in your daily spiritual checklist. Again, assuming, I didn't share the gospel with four people this week, therefore God likes me less. It's leaning on your resume. Yeah, I mean, this is how we can easily mask it in spiritual tasks, but still be living in a way that's anti-gospel by trusting in what we've done instead of what Jesus has done. Doing things in your own strength or ability or being devastated when your strength or ability is taken from you. I've wrestled with this with my own illness and weakness and and feeling like, well, all of a sudden, I don't have as much value because I can't do as much. That's me leaning on my resume instead of the resume of Jesus. Putting your confidence in how much you know. If you feel superior to other Christians because you read some good books, you're leaning on your resume right? And you're apparently not reading those books rightly, right? It doesn't make you any more right with God than other people. The brand new Christian who knows nothing but the fact that Jesus died and rose for them is just as right with God as you are after you've read a hundred books, because that's accomplished by Jesus, not by us and what we've done. Those things are leaning on your resume. So Paul's going to tell us more of what it looks like to lose that resume. Starting at verse 7, he says, referring to those things, 
Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He said, indeed, I count everything as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. He doesn't want people to envy his resume. He wants them to see that it doesn't matter. He counts it as loss. And what does that mean, to count what used to be gain as loss for the sake of Christ? To say it really briefly, Paul doesn't just add his faith to his resume, right? He throws it out and makes the resume of Jesus his resume. Here's an example. When a man gets married, what he does not do is just add his wife to the list of women that he already likes. If a woman said, hey, Tripp, I just want to know if I should marry this dude. He's glad to be married to me. He is going to keep this list of other 10 women that he really likes and he likes to go on dates with, but he wants to marry me. And I would say, well, don't do that. And please let me speak with this young man, right? Because that's not, that's not what marriage is. Marriage, by definition, is counting all those other relationships as over and committing yourself fully to a wife, right? All of your romantic attention going in one direction forever, saying, you're the only one I'm going to pursue ever. And Paul is saying the same thing. He's not saying, hey, I've done all these things, and now I believe in Jesus too. Let me add him to the list. He's saying, I'm throwing the list out, and Jesus is the only thing I hope in now. A married man counts all those other women as lost to put his attention to one. And Paul is saying, I count all those other spiritual things as lost and point all my attention towards Jesus. He's the only one I hope in. So it's not as if those things are erased from history like they never happened, those things he did. He's just saying those things still exist, but they're not what I'm banking on. That's what it means to count them as lost, the things he used to think were gain. And why did he do it? He's saying because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. He's saying that knowing Jesus is better than all of that. Knowing Jesus. Is there a difference in knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus? Of course, you could sit in the service and learn some things about Jesus. That doesn't mean you know him. I know a lot of facts about Michael Jordan, but if I roll up on him, his security is going to push me down. I don't know that man. I just know some stuff about him. This kind of knowledge it's talking about here, knowing Jesus, is talking about a relationship, right? The kind of interaction that requires relationship. Do you know Jesus? And the only way we can know Jesus, if I do what Paul is talking about here, counting those things as lost and trusting in him so that we can know him. And he's saying knowing Jesus is better than that. I wonder if you count knowing Jesus as better than everything else in your life. Is knowing Jesus better to you than that relationship you have? Is knowing Jesus better to you than that job you have? Again, I'm not saying quit your job tomorrow to know Jesus. Do not hear me say that. If you quit your job, that's on you, okay? Don't put that on me. I'm saying do you count Jesus better than that? Here's the thing. When we do not count knowing Jesus as better than all the things we have in this world and that we've accomplished, we are never going to choose Jesus over those things. So then when they require us to actually compromise our following Jesus, we're going to disobey him every single time. Paul is saying knowing Jesus is better than that, right? It's almost like seeing something and thinking it's great, then seeing something else that's far greater, and this doesn't look so great anymore. Like if my son built a little Eiffel Tower with his Legos, I'd be like, man, that is amazing. If I was standing next to the actual Eiffel Tower, I'd be like, eh, that's all right. This is a, a mastery of architecture. That was cute. And Paul is saying in the same way, look, 
these things used to look really great to me. They seemed amazing, but compared to knowing Jesus, like, where do these things actually get me? Those things that you think are the greatest thing about you or that you've accomplished, where will those things get you when you stand before God? They may be good things, but knowing Jesus is far better. This will get you praise from men. This will get you in eternity with God. Having those things may give you a good 10, 15, 20, 60 years. Having these things will give you an incredible eternity knowing Jesus. When you compare the things of this world, the things we've accomplished, to knowing Jesus, Jesus will win every single time. And I wonder if that's true in our heart. The truth is, every time we sin, we're telling Jesus that whatever that thing is that we want, that we disobey him for, that that's actually greater than him which is untrue. Paul is saying knowing Jesus is surpassingly greater than all of those things. That's why he says, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, right? Lego Eiffel Tower looked dope. Real Eiffel Tower, this is now rubbish, right? All the things I've accomplished look amazing. Knowing Christ, this is rubbish in comparison. It's trash. The word is scubalon, means waste, right? It's waste compared to knowing Jesus. And why is knowing Jesus so much better? Because he's Jesus. He's holy, and he's matchless, and he's humble, and he's gracious, and he's powerful, and he's wise. Man, I mean, the relationships that we treat as if they're better than knowing Jesus, that relationship gives you like 15 minutes of laughs every day. When the Lord Jesus is offering us pleasures at his right hand forevermore. I mean, what are we doing? We're like bad jewelry appraisers who see an incredible diamond and see a little rhinestone. It's like, oh, I'm going to take that rhinestone. That's, that's foolish. That, that's like seeing some Monopoly money. Looks cool when you're playing Monopoly and then an actual million dollars. I mean, like, I'm going to take that Monopoly money. Every time we choose something over Jesus... We're making an awful decision because Jesus is surpassingly greater than all things. All things, because Jesus is Jesus. And what good will those things you've accomplished do you if you don't get to go to heaven and spend an eternity with him? What good, what good are those things going to do you if they don't even last? Relationship with Jesus lasts. Don't lean on your resume. Number two, lose your resume. Finally, receive Christ's resume. Receive the resume of Jesus. Again, when I talk to people on planes and I ask them that question, do you have a relationship with God or do you think you're going to go to heaven? Do you think you're going to spend an eternity with God? And they point to the things that they've done. Paul is saying that that kind of perspective is foolish. We should count those things as loss. Listen to what he says. He says we should count those things as loss. And he says uh, at the end of verse 8, in order that I may gain Christ. That's why we count him as lost. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Again, if you look at the comparisons of, of what our accomplishments get us compared to what the accomplishments of Jesus get us, there is no comparison. 
I love what he says there about being found in him. That's not how we always think about knowing Jesus, is being found in him. We're like, maybe I'll be found beside him. But Scripture talks about our relationship with Jesus as if it's more than a friend we walk beside and high five. But as if when we believe in Jesus, there's this unity that happens, there's this uniting that occurs that we can be said to be in Christ and for Christ to be in us. Paul says, I want to be found in him. Almost like there's a terrible storm coming our way. A tornado, a hurricane, or hail, something that can kill us. And that there's a house, there's a shelter that we can walk into so that when that storm comes, that storm cannot do anything to us. One of the storms that's coming, of course, there are the storms of this world that want to end us. There are trials that come our way. But the worst storm of all is the wrath of God, the judgment that we deserve for our sins. I mean, the very reason our resumes don't stand up. But if we can be found in Jesus... Right? If we're standing on our own when the storm comes, we're done. But if we can be in that shelter, if we can be in Jesus, then we're safe. We're secure. We have peace. We have joy. Because we're in Jesus. Paul says he wants to be found in Jesus. And he says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. This is the clearest way Paul can say this. When you stand before God, there has to be a righteousness there that allows you to be able to spend an eternity with him. And Paul says, I don't have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. He's saying, the righteousness that I have that matters before God is not me doing the right things, but that which comes through faith in Christ. He's not saying there are two options for how you can spend eternity with God, your righteousness or Jesus's. He's saying your righteousness doesn't exist. Or Scripture says it's filthy rags. But then there's a righteousness of Jesus. Here's an example of what it means to to let go of your righteousness and cling to Jesus. One time I was um, going to a concert. I had to rent a car. I had a friend with me, two friends with me. And uh, I needed the car. I handed her my card to do it. She swipes. And then uh, she starts having a confused look on her face. I'm like, "Uh uh-uh. And she, was, she tried to be very nice about it. She was like, um, your card has been declined. I was looking around, making sure nobody heard it. I was like, no, nah, no, nah, nah. my card didn't get declined. You need to swipe that again, ma'am. And I don't know what it is about your card didn't get declined. It feels like uh, an attack on your manhood. But that's, that's how it felt in that moment. I was like, I provide for my family. You better swipe that again. <laughs> Working hard out here. It's like, all right, swipes it again, nothing. I'm like, try this one. Try this one. She swipes my other card. It doesn't work. And I'm like, what is happening right now? And so I'm feeling the pressure. And my friend is standing next to me. We got to hurry up and get to the show. He's like, Trip, just use mine. I, I, you can pay me back. I'm like, no, I got money in my account. <laughs> Try this one. You know, pulling out more stuff. And here's the thing. But there was something wrong with my bank account, just so you know. But here's the thing. <laughs> I could keep trying a million cards, and I wasn't going to be able to pay for that car at that time. If I was ever going to get that car, I needed to just accept my friend who's saying, hey, I have money right here. Just swipe it, and we can go and deal with it later. But in my own pride, I didn't want to do that. And here's the exact thing we do with the righteousness of Jesus. We want to refuse to let go of the fact that we can't earn our way to God, and in refusing to accept the righteousness of Jesus, 
We keep trying to do it on our own. And as long as we continue to do that, we will not have a relationship with God and we will not spend an eternity with him. But the good news is even though our account of righteousness is absolutely empty and it won't get us anywhere with God, the Lord Jesus has riches of grace and righteousness that he's willing to give us so that when we trust in Jesus, it's as if there's a a transfer, a bank transfer between our accounts that Jesus puts the righteousness we need in our account so that we can get into the family of God and spend an eternity with him. Man, that's good news. Isn't that incredible news for those of us who never feel good enough? For those of us who never feel like we're good enough to be known by God, that Jesus, that God has made another way. He said, just trust in Christ and transfer will occur. So then when Jesus died on the cross, he took the punishment that we deserved. It was like we switched places. Jesus got our sentence and we got his freedom. We are bankrupt in our righteousness. Jesus is rich in righteousness. Trust in Jesus and a transfer will happen. Trust in Jesus. And Paul is saying, look, I don't have righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith. That which comes through faith in Jesus. We need to believe in Jesus and we'll get the righteousness of Christ. The Spurgeon quote, I I love how Spurgeon says this. When we keep looking to our own lives, and I'll talk to people say, man, I want to come to God, but I just can't get my life together. I want to know God, but I just keep doing bad stuff. Listen to what Spurgeon says. He said, oh, You say, I do not repent enough. That is looking to yourself. I do not believe enough. That is looking to yourself. I am too unworthy. That is looking to yourself. I cannot discover, says another, that I have any righteousness. It's quite right to say that you have not any righteousness, but it's quite wrong to look for any. It is look unto me. That's what God says. Look unto me. God will have you turn your eye off yourself and look unto him. Man, isn't that freeing? Doesn't that bring us rest, right? If you feel like you don't perform good enough to get accepted by God, the good news is God doesn't tell you to perform good enough. He tells you to trust in Jesus who already has on your behalf. That's one of the beauties of knowing Jesus is we get to rest. Even in the way that we like to perform for other people, we feel like we're not good enough to get accepted by other people. And my thing is, I know I'm not good enough. And if you think I'm not good enough, You're seeing accurately, which is why I trust in Jesus. I do not have to spend my life trying to make you like me or accept me. I've been accepted by Jesus. I'd rather be accepted by him than by you. That's good news. I mean, that's rest for our souls. We do not have to live our lives to be people pleasers. God is pleased with me. You don't like me. Good thing you're not the final judge. God is. And I'm already accepted by him and Jesus. That's the beauty of the good news. And Paul goes on to say he wants to become, he wants to um, know him in the power of his resurrection, right? He's saying, when my life is over, I want to be raised like Jesus was. But not only that, it may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul is saying, I don't only want to be resurrected, I even want to share in his suffering, the kinds of sufferings that God has promised his people that he's going to use to refine us and make us more like Jesus. Paul's saying that by any means I may attain the, the resurrection from the dead. He's basically saying, I want to persevere to the end. Whatever God sends my way that allows my faith to be refined, that I'm still believing in Jesus by the time I make it to the end, I want that. Because more than Paul wants a claim from his friends or wants worldly ambition or worldly success, he wants to know God and on the last day be raised from the dead. 
And that's our problem sometimes. It's more than we want to stand before God and be raised from the dead and spend an eternity with him. We want people to like us, or we want to be at the top of our game. And until we get that perspective right, that it's way more important that we would be with God forever than that they would, we would be in the in crowd for a few years, until we get that fixed, we're never going to want to throw away our righteousness and trust in the righteousness of Jesus. That's what Paul has called us to do. Don't lean on your resume, who you are and what you've done. It's not enough. Lose your resume. Count it as lost for the sake of knowing Jesus and receive the resume of Jesus. Receive his. Accept that. Look, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you can know him right now. You don't have to sign a form. You don't have to shake my hand. You can trust in Jesus right now. You can say, I know I'm not good enough, but Christ was. You can say, I know that I deserved judgment, but Jesus took it for me, and he raised from the dead, and I turn away from my sin and trust in him. You can know Jesus right now. If you want to know more about what it means to know Jesus, please come talk to us after the service. We'd love to talk to you about that. If you pay attention to the great Christian songs that have been sung forever, all of them drive home this truth. Solid rock, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. It's good. Nothing but the blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not the good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's good news. Before the throne of God above, behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness. The great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One in himself I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Our only hope is in Jesus, his work, and what he's done. Not our own. And even as believers, we'll find ourselves trying to trust in our righteousness. That's the default setting of our hearts. You know when you set your phone and you reset it to the original settings? It's like our heart resets to the original settings every day, and there's more work to be done in God's Word. Get into God's Word so that you would trust His works and not your own. I'm going to pray. Father, thank you so much for your Word. We're so, we're so inclined to trust ourselves instead of you, Lord. So, Father, we pray that you would give us grace to trust in Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, and not our own works and our own righteousness, Lord. Father, I pray if anybody's here who doesn't know Jesus, Lord, that you'd bring them to know him, that they'd see him for the good Savior that he is, Father. They trust in him, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.